Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. I'm speaking with Christian Reither. He's a value investor and ultra marathoner who manages money via Korean Capital. Korean Capital seeks out ugly duckling stocks, companies that are misunderstood, underappreciated, and cast aside. But the reality is they are high quality swans. So welcome to the podcast, Christian. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Yeah. So how'd you first get interested in investing? Well, I was in high school in the 90s. And I think the first time my mom had people come into the house selling stuff, one person came to sell like this uh, vacuum cleaner that used all this water. And another lady came in and she was selling mutual funds. And she told me that if you keep your money in the bank, it is being eroded by inflation. And that was just like, wait, what? So I think from her, I bought some global utility fund that didn't do that great. And then I started getting into investing and I just like read everything I could. And I'm not, can't really say that it, it stuck that well. Like I remember reading Ben Graham's security analysis and it was like all about these low PE things. And I grew up near Rochester, New York. So Paychex was the big stock there. And I was like, well, this doesn't make any sense. Like Paychex is clearly awesome and it doesn't fit to anything like this. So maybe like PEs used to be low, but now that the economy has grown and the world has gotten better, PEs are now much higher. And it turned out that was completely wrong. It was just like the 90s bubble lifting things up. But that was how I first got started. Yeah, just like swept up in 90s stock. It was in the air. Yeah, I got interested in investing around the same time. So he had a similar experience there. So who were your main investing influences that influence you to this day? I think Peter Lynch was first one I read where it was like, well, this is really cool. He had a bunch of books, like one up on Wall Street and Beating the Street in the 90s. And I think they were popular because like you read it and it's just like, yeah, this is cool. I'm impressed with him. He is able to do all these different types of investing and he did it well. I'm still a big fan of him, even though that was one of the early ones. Obviously, Buffett, I think his letters are extremely helpful. And like, if I go back and reread them, I'm like, didn't even know that this part was in there. And it's like a deep vein to be mined. You can keep going back to it and learn new things based on wherever you are because he's like such a master at so many things. I like Charlie Munger and Joel Greenblatt. Special situation. I think they're so awesome. And for him to like have made this book to tell everybody about them. Yeah, I like all of these investors because they were also teachers. There are a lot of great investors who what they know dies with them. And these guys have shared some little bit of what they had as well as made it interesting and exciting, which I think is helpful. Those four, I'd say, are influences and people that I respect. They're not perfect in any way, but like at least they're sharing something. Yeah, they're all awesome. Those are all great investors and great people to learn from. Peter Lynch, I love the book Beating the Street, how it takes you through kind of real world examples of here's an actual business I dealt with and here's what happened with it. It's not very theoretical. It's like very much in your face. What were some of the big lessons you picked up from Peter Lynch? I don't have citations in my memory of where did I learn this or where did I get that? I like how he talks about cyclicals because I keep getting attracted to cyclicals and I keep, sometimes I do well and sometimes I get burned and then I go read him and I'm like, oh yeah, I should have 
paid some attention to this. Like the cyclical, you want to buy it when the PE is ridiculously high, they're losing money and all this stuff, but they're going to survive. And you've got like these quiet facts that are good. And you don't want to buy it when it's like a single digit PE multiple and things have been going great for a while. And it's like, that's backwards from a lot of other things where you want to buy the cheap stock and you don't want to buy the super expensive stock. And just like he lays it out and he makes sense. But then he's talking about fast growers where the rules are completely different or like slow, cheaper stock where the rules are completely different and turnarounds, which can be similar to a cyclical. But I guess some of the rules of the categories and the fact that there are categories and that the rules are different based on what kind of business and where the business is in its life cycle. Those are some things I got from Peter Lynch. He's got some rule about like if interest rates are X percent above dividend yields. I don't think I've ever been able to use that rule. So like his actual rules are like less useful for me than just the little things he talks about. It is cool how versatile he was, how he was able to to talk so many different kinds of situations, like a fast grower he can value. And then at the same time, he can look at like a cyclical and figure out the best time to get into that. It's uh, really wide ranging, the stuff that he could pull off. Yeah. And I think Buffett's sort of the same way where they can do the whole universe. And you look at like one little thing that they didn't like, oh, they did that extremely well. And then here in this other thing in left field, oh, they did that extremely well too. It's just like, wow, <laughs> okay. That's what great skill looks like. Yeah, absolutely. And you also mentioned Greenblatt. So I'm a big fan of all of Greenblatt's books. I think they're all pretty great. But I think you mentioned special situations. So you're probably a big fan of you can be a stock market genius, I'm guessing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, well, everybody who's read that is like, I would like to be a stock market genius, but thank you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So what were some of the big lessons that you picked up from that book? I mean, the main thing is look at these things. When something weird and like a big transformation is happening at a company, like go look. A lot of the time it doesn't fit what I'm looking for in XYZ way, but it's still like, I think an, a really interesting place to go fishing. Because you can have these weird dynamics where, I don't know, it's like fusion or fission, where like when you rip apart atoms, crazy stuff can happen. And when you stick them together, crazy stuff can happen. Just like the dynamics that can come out of this. Like you have a spinoff, which he says is like, will remain fundamentally inefficient because you're giving people stock that they didn't want. And that's just like a fundamentally inefficient way to distribute stock. That's not how you would build a universe, but that's what they're doing. And, and so things can go bump in the night. And I just find it interesting. Like I like these ugly ducklings and I like it when something gets cast off and maybe the management of the parent company is like, ah, this was like a crappy business that my predecessor bought and we're getting rid of it. They usually don't say that, but sometimes I get that feeling. They're like, oh, this low margin business that somebody else put together, now we're getting rid of because we're getting focused on the things that I want to do. I like these cast off things. I think that they're good and other people are wrong about them. Yeah, super interesting. Yeah, it's been also a pretty interesting area and in a way, a sector of the market with a lot of opportunities. I'm not sure if it's as much of a fertile ground for ideas as it was in Greenblatt's day, but I still think there's still a lot of high quality ideas in that space. I hear that all the time. And people are like, it's better internationally or something like that because it's picked over in the United States. I feel like most things, it comes in waves or it's cyclical and people do well in it and more eyes and more money get pushed into it. And that can like dilute your returns. And also it's just what's in fashion with companies. A few years ago, there were all these defense spinoffs. And then there were like, there seemed to be some auto spinoffs and the pharmaceutical companies are spinning off or splitting off all of their consumer health 
Johnson is getting rid of Band-Aids and the Glaxo got rid of one and Novartis is getting rid of Sandoz. Like all these are happening at the same time. If what they're getting rid of for this year is interesting, that can be great. And if they're getting rid of junk this year, that it's not as great of a place to go looking for a particular year. So it's like you have these ebb and flow of money and interest into it. And you've got the ebb and what's on offer. What's the special this month or what's the special this year? Sometimes it's just not interesting. I think it's a fun place to look. It fits my personality, but sometimes you're going to get unattractive things. This week, the special is shellfish. I don't want to have that, but other times it's great. But I would say when I look at the spinoffs that have been happening past maybe a year and a half, two years, they've done well. And I think part of that is people got burned in the years before that. And people are looking at a different game right now and less looking at spinoffs. So interesting stuff is happening there. It still doesn't always fit what I want to buy, but some of them are still done well, despite the fact that it's not for me, but they did well. So yeah, I'd I, say it might have been way better in the 80s and probably in the 30s, it was even way better than that. But like, it's not so bad right now. Yeah, I think what Greenblatt would probably say is you can't necessarily buy a basket of spinoffs like you used to and not think about it but you'd have to go in and actually evaluate the opportunities in there. And there are good opportunities in that space. That's what I guess he would say. So do you want to talk a little bit about the typical ugly duckling stock situation that you're looking for? My favorite ugly ducklings are these weird corporate transactions. So spinoffs, split offs. I really like where the company is doing something and maybe the stock is doing something that will shake things up and maybe give me an opportunity. Those types of things. I also like it when companies do tender offers for their own stock. I think it's a more interesting way for companies to do a buyback. They're not just going in and doing VWAP for like a long period of time, which might be positive as well. But I like it when they're like, here's the price that we want to pay. And again, you got to look at those. And sometimes it's not interesting. And sometimes like, wait, this company that I'd never heard of before because they're not promotional at all. This is the way that I heard about these things. And they're just like, yeah, we buy back our stock and we do it in this big public way. I find these companies just by looking at those tender offers or the spinoffs. And, and I think it gives me attractive and interesting businesses to look at. They're not marketing themselves. Like the marketing material is the SEC filing or regulatory filing they have to make as opposed to a press release or something like that. Those are usually the places that I look where executives are buying back stock themselves, like these insider trades. I've gotten more interested in over the past two years. I read this book by Nejat Sehun, this professor at Michigan, who like studied director and executive trades to see like where is it more interesting, where is it less interesting. And I found that interesting. I'm still trying to figure out how that works best for me, but it's like another attractive pool to fish in, though it's not always long-term businesses. A lot of time it's like something good has changed at a business, but the business might still be crappy, but earnings are still going to double. Those are big areas for me. So special situations like spinoffs and split-offs, tender offers for your own stock and directors and executives buying stock. That'll give me the bulk of what I want to look at. And then I have companies that I've looked at before, past spinoffs or past spinoff parents, and they just get cheap for one reason or another. And then I can update my work and get up to speed quickly. And sometimes those are interesting too. The more of a universe that I have that I've valued, the more likely something is to pop up as attractively priced. Now, within those buckets, is there a particular segment that tends to work best or do they all work equally well for you? 
I'd say the thing that works best for me is a cash cow spinoff, a boring business that doesn't grow very much. They've been spun out of a parent with like, this is a boring, low growth business, maybe low margin business even, but it's got high returns on capital and it's just pumped out cash forever. Instead of going to the parent company for their exciting project, now that cash maybe to improve the business or maybe to do something like they could start doing acquisitions or whatever. But that type of boring spinoff, when I look at my returns, those have been the best for me. It's not necessarily the thing that I'm most, but that's where my interests align with other people and getting decent returns. Nice. Now, do you have any examples of situations that you might have purchased like that that worked out well? I don't think I have anything that I own right now that's boring cash flow. Some of the spinoffs that are coming might fit that, like the the Johnson & Johnson split off these consumer health companies that are being spun out of pharmaceuticals. Those are cash cows, but they're not that cheap. But that would sort of fit what I'm looking for. NCR is doing a spinoff right now. That might work. Kellogg is spinning off their cereal. That might work. Those might be these sort of like cash cowy, boring businesses. I can't say that they will be, but they fit. One thing that did work for me a couple of years ago was when VF Corp spun out Contour. I call it the Walmart gene business. It's Wrangler and Lee. And that was a much more boring business than it's become. Like the manager of that company who used to run the jeans business for VF Corp and then he did so well, he got promoted. He then went back and became the CEO when it spun out. They were a cash cow for VF for years, and now they're a cash cow for themselves, and they're trying to like improve the business, make Wrangler and Lee sexier and better. And I think they've done a fine job, even though it's still mostly a dividend, slow growth play. I've been able to buy that stock a couple times when it's just too cheap, and then it goes up and I can move out. I guess that's one of Peter Lynch's sort of stalwart type things where like if it does well, you sell it because... It's never going to be a 10-bagger unless something dramatically changes, but it can do well from like 10 to 25 or something like that. You can make a lot of money when it moves there. Yeah, interesting. Those are some interesting situations. Um, I didn't realize Kellogg was thinking about spinning that off their cereal business. That could be pretty interesting. I'll have to take a look at that. Yeah, the numbers don't look amazing, but I remember Post Holdings got spun out 2012, 13, something like that out of Ralcorp. Then it ended up being a great spinoff. That was before the fund, but I did well with that too. I think cereal is less popular now and maybe a dying business, but if they're independent, they might <laughs> might make it stop dying. So we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see on that one. So how do you find ideas? So do you mostly look through companies that are thinking about spinoffs or have recently spun something off or do you use screeners or how do you tend to generate your ideas? It's a mishmash. I try to look at every spinoff that I hear about. So on the SEC, I can look for Form 10-12B. And occasionally there are spinoffs on other forms, but they're harder to find. you got to search for them more. So I've got like Google Alerts to try to find things. I'm on some newsletters where people send me, here are the interesting transactions that are happening this month. My goal is to find out about the spinoff before it happens. So I'm ready on day one. Because I think internationally, especially, the first few trades can be at prices that quickly look wrong. That happens most when very few people know it's happening. So I want to be one of the few people that happen that know about it. But that's not always easy. I've been able to find some spinoffs by looking at director and executive share purchases. Because sometimes 
directors and executives, they're buying stock before something interesting happens. And when I start looking, I'm like, oh, the interesting thing is that they're doing this major corporate reorganization with spinoffs or whatever like that. So it's a mix of looking at regulatory filings, looking at newsletters, looking at director and executive share purchases, and then just like whatever else I can find if somebody mentioned something on Twitter or something like that. Somebody mentioned the topic of spinoff a couple of years ago. I saw that on Twitter. Like, I don't have a good way to find Canadian spinoffs. And that one was really weird. And I just found it because someone tweeted about Constellation Software doing a, a weird transaction. I wish there was a better way, but I also wish that I was the only one who knew. <laughs> but I, I don't know how to, <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to get that. Because you want to be the only one who knows about it at first. And then after you buy it, other people can find out about it. But that's not that easy to do. Yeah, and I think you're right about those early stages when that's when you get most of your forced selling with those, right? Like where people receive the stock and they don't necessarily want to own it and they just sell it for any price that's available, right? In my mind, at least, that's always a possibility and I probably get excited about it more than it actually happens. There've been a bunch of times where I've woke up in the middle of the night to like try to be there at the first tick on like a UK or a Swedish or whatever spinoff and I'm ready to buy it at 10 and it comes out at like 40 and I'm like, oh, okay, well, that didn't work. But I always get excited because the possibility is there. I think that there is opportunity there, but I probably overinflate it in my mind of how big the opportunity is. But the other thing that can happen to create opportunities is like, I've seen this a bunch of times where if the stock market falls apart or has a problem, recent spinoff, sometimes they just don't have a strong shareholder base or for whatever reason, the market drops 10% and some of these just can drop 30, 40, 50% or something like that. They can just get obliterated if people start selling them soon after the spinoff happens. So I remember like Front Door got just destroyed a few years ago when I don't even remember if it was a bad downturn, but it was right after they spun out. So it's like, if the market does decline, some recent spinoffs might get hurt a great deal. And that might be a good opportunity. So that would be another place where you can have an opportunity with spinoffs is if the market stumbles, they can get really hurt. And whereas a few years later, they wouldn't get hurt in the same sort of situation because they've got shareholders who trust them at that point, but they don't have that early on. Yeah, I noticed that. I was looking at the history of a ETF that tracks spinoffs, and I noticed they have severe drawdowns when the market is having a very severe drawdown, like 709 or in March 2020. They seem to go down a little bit more than the market. And do you think that's because of this issue with the shareholder base? That's like my attempt to explain what I've seen. I think that's what it is, but I don't know for sure. What I would say is look at recent spinoffs when things go bump in the night because you might get something interesting there. Just because few people have done the work. And when you haven't done the work and you're, you need cash, like you get rid of the, the new thing, the new guy who like nobody loves him yet. So how do you think about a high quality business? So you mentioned you're looking for these ugly ducklings that are actually really good businesses. So in terms of business quality, what are some of the attributes and characteristics that you look for? I think the easiest way to see it in the numbers is a high return on tangible capital. So working capital plus net PP&E is your tangible capital, net operating profit after tax. And you can adjust that for amortization if that's non-cash. And you just want something where they're earning above 20% after tax on their tangible capital, where it's not just a cyclical high or something like that, but it's like, this is a business that earns above 20% on their tangible capital over time. That's a good business. 
I want to understand why is this a good business? Why isn't there somebody coming in to take that away from them? What are the barriers to entry? What's the customer captivity? What allows them to earn those high returns over time and continue to do that? High returns on capital and the durability of that, that's a good business for me. And sometimes it's like, I read about a company and it sounds like it would have all that. And then you just look at the numbers and it's not there. And it's like, this is not a good business. And I think it's pretty quick test to look at that. And you have to be careful with turnarounds and with cyclicals to make sure you're looking over the full life cycle of this thing to make sure it's really like that. But with a regular business, you can usually see that pretty quickly. Yeah, that would be the basics. High returns on tangible capital, where that is sustainable in the competitive world we live in and will continue to exist over time. That's my quick and dirty definition. That's a good definition. Business can generate 20% is probably a pretty good business if they can do it consistently and there are good reasons for it. Yeah. There are some businesses do like 100% or something like that. And it's usually because tangible capital goes to a very small number. And I don't think they're necessarily, they're not that much better at that point. Like if it's above 20%, the key thing is like, can they grow? And is this really durable? Makes a lot of sense. So how do you think about valuation? Do you have strict rules around valuation? Do you use multiples? Do you use DCF? How do you think about valuation? The main way that I do valuation is I'm looking out three to five years, usually like how far out do I think I can get it to sort of what normal would look like? What do I think the next three to five years are going to look like? If I'm wrong and things are bad, what do the next three to five years look like? And then I just take the DCF of the downside and the value of the cash flows for the upside. I don't discount it really. I just want to know what it's worth in year three. So I have my a reasonable value, which is like, what is this worth in three years? And then I have my downside value, which is like in a negative scenario, what is the DCF of this value? And so that gives me my downside value. And then I want to have an attractive upside to downside where it's like, if I think the upside is 30 bucks and the downside is 10 bucks, if I'm buying at 15, like that's probably not so bad. And if I can buy below 10, that's a lot better. That's the sort of the basic of it. It gets different with like fast growers and it gets different where things are going badly or if I'm pessimistic. So like lately what I've been buying are companies that are not doing great. Their operational momentum isn't good and just like things look bad. I'm paying two thirds of my downside valuation. If things are going well, I want an attractive upside to downside ratio. If things are going poorly, I want like a real discount to my downside valuation. And if you've got a super grower that's like amazing and I think like this is sustainable over time, then I'm paying a much higher price than that. So it sort of depends on what type of business it is and what I'm finding. That'll change over time. But what I'm finding right now is bad operating results, but very cheap stock prices, even when I have my pessimistic add-on and I value the business, I can still buy it for less than that. So that's where I'm finding stuff now. And how do you think about position sizing? So you have these different buckets of strategies you pursue. How do you think about how to size a position? Do you put more money into a certain kind of opportunity? Do you equally wait? How do you think about that? Well, usually I'm like 10 to 15% position sizes when I find something that if I have a spinoff with a five to one upside to downside ratio, maybe 15% into it, depending on how excited I am. And if it's like much cheaper, I could go higher. But right now I'm like so pessimistic about everything that I've just been buying 2% positions of things and keeping a whole boatload of cash. And I just keep buying these 2% positions. When the stock price goes down or the operating results are better than I expected, I might add one or 2%, but I've been doing everything in these like little eyedroppers. 
but that's not how I want to operate. Like my normal modus operandi is 10 to 15% positions for these good businesses with good upside to downside ratios, but I'm not there now because I'm sad about the world or whatever. (laughs) So that's interesting. You said you're pessimistic about where things are headed. What makes you pessimistic about the current environment? I made this mistake of looking at inverted yield curves and trying to analyze them. And when I look at it, well, it's mega, mega inverted right now. So <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if it matters how inverted, but it's been inverted now for a while. Usually not great. It's not like a perfect signal. It's not like a dinner bell or something like that, where every time it goes off, you get Pavlovian. My analysis tells me it's not good. It doesn't necessarily make everything fall apart today, and it doesn't necessarily make things fall apart at all. Like in 1979, it was inverted and the stock market went up 40%. But what I've seen is, in general, if the stock market is inverted, you'll be happier just holding cash than holding stock, the S&P 500. So that's where I am. And of course, the stock market just goes up. But I'm sad and pessimistic about the world, putting in small amounts. But I still am able to find some things where, even with my pessimistic view, like I'm like, all right, we're just rerunning 0809. But then I get these businesses where I don't think it's going bankrupt. I think it's a high quality business. They're selling for two-thirds of my downside value. And it's like, well, okay, I'll buy that then, 2%. (laughs) And we'll keep doing that until I run out of cash or I get more opportunities. Yeah, and at least today you're getting paid something for that cash. So that's a nice aspect of today's environment. Like I live in New York City where I pay federal, state, and the New York City income tax. And treasury bills where you don't pay state and local taxes, I just like it's invisible. So it doesn't even push you into a higher tax bracket. It's invisible state tax things. I get a lot of joy out of that. So I don't know. It's a pleasant, the after-tax result similar to long-term gains. So I think that's kind of nice. So you're an ultra marathoner. How'd you get into that? What do you enjoy about ultra marathons? I would say that I got interested in ultra marathons because almost 20 years ago now, I was out to lunch with my then girlfriend and she knew runner people. And we had lunch with this guy who was wearing a big belt buckle that was from the Western States 100 because he'd just come back from running the Western States 100, which I think is one of the first ultra marathons. It was like, guy was going to run it with his horse and then the horse got lame and he decided to run it anyway just by himself. And that became like a, a legendary story that other people wanted to do. And I remember thinking like, this guy has this belt buckle from running 100 miles, which is just, it's absurd. Like, why would you do that to yourself? But it stuck with me as like, it was like a splinter in my mind where it's like, well, that's what it is to be a man. And I was like, at a certain point, I was like, well, I got to get one of those. I got to try to do that, even though I continue to think that it's insane. So I trained for it and I worked for it. And like the first ultra marathon I ran was Vermont 100. And I dropped out. I DNF'd, did not finish at, I don't know, like mile 78 or something like that. But from like mile 50 on, I was in bad shape. Like my foot was all messed up. My hip was all messed up. I was taking ibuprofen, I think every like few miles just to mask the pain. And I was like, wait a second, like I could cause myself serious damage here and not be able to run again. Let's drop it. And so I dropped it, even though I was reasonably close to the finish, just because I didn't want to never run again. I trained more. I ran the second one, Chimera 100 out in California. And I finished that one. So that was the first one I finished. And then after I moved to Colorado, I was able to train at altitude. And then I took second place at the Black Hills 100 ultra marathon in uh, South Dakota. 
So now I've got like this big bison skull on my on my wall to remind me of that one time where I ran in the heat um, awesome. better than most people. Running, I think, is extremely good for me. Like I run very angry and I'm mad about all sorts of things in the world. And then I come home and I take a shower and I'm like in a much better mental state. <laughs> like the, the running itself is painful and the thoughts are not good. But afterward is very good. But ultra marathon, I've got acid reflux now. And like, I think that I got that from running these long distances. So I don't know if it was good for my body, but it's like, I'm happy I did it. I finally got those belt buckles and I've got a bison skull. So it's good to have done. I don't know if I would recommend it, but I'm glad I did it. Awesome. Do you think that running impacts your investing at all? Are there any parallels between the two? What I think is pursuing an, to run the ultra marathon or to pursue any big project, interesting things happen when I pursue big projects. And I think when anybody pursues big projects like that, it's like, yeah, you go for the thing and I got the belt buckle, but like you learn things about yourself and you end up meeting interesting people. And it's just like the sort of magic happens when I pursue a bigger project. I reached out and I talked to a lot of people who had done ultra marathons and that was interesting. And I learned about the world and it like pushed me to be more outgoing to talk to those people. It pushed me to like explore the city and to explore Colorado in ways that I wouldn't have. So I would say the benefit of any big project are like these weird magical things that happen that you wouldn't predict. And often like getting involved with meeting other people that I wouldn't have met otherwise. That's the main benefit from big projects. I don't know if it's so applicable to investing. It's more, who is it? Russo. He talks about your capacity to handle pain or something like that. I guess that's useful, especially with like cheap stocks that have bad operating momentum <laughs> or just like, yeah, holding on to Nestle for 500 years. You want to take some pain with a good business that's going to stay a good business forever. That sort of like, yeah, I can handle some pain and I've proven that to myself. That can be helpful for investing. But I think the main benefits are just unexpected positives pursuing any big project, which are meeting interesting people and learning stuff about yourself. Awesome. Yeah. That sounds like a good lessons that you learned from there. Yeah, I think like you doing this podcast is will do weird, unexpected positives for you too. Like you'll get the thing that you went for, but also you get these other things that may might be even more important. Yeah, I hope so. For now, it's just cool. To, it's just a good excuse to have interesting conversations with people like yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you go for the thing you want, you usually get so all the other stuff that's also cool too. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I'm learning a lot I'm doing it and, and talking to different people. I can definitely relate to that. Good. So you've had the fund for 10 years now. So what inspired you to start the fund? I was working at this firm, Neustrata, and I got fired. And I was like, okay. So I met a headhunter and he had me interview with a bunch of places. And I got this great consulting job with like the perfect hedge fund. It was up in Connecticut, which was a terrible commute, but like great hedge fund. They do spinoffs. They do good work. They do global spinoffs. They had great partners, like big endowments were invested with them. And there were really cool people there who I became friends with and like some of them I still know and, and work with. And I was like, this is objectively perfect. This is Shangri-La. I found the most wonderful place to be. And I absolutely hated it. And that wow. juxtaposition of like, objectively speaking, this is exactly what I wanted. And I hate it. Like what, what is going on? And that made me sort of, stop and think and talk with my wife about like, if I got what I wanted and I don't like it, 
what is it I really want? And what I came up with is like, I've got a too big of an ego now. I don't want to spend time demonstrating that I know what I'm doing. I just want to do what I know what I'm doing, <laughs> do, do what I know that I want to do. And I thought like, this looks like me running money myself. And I talked to people about like an RIA or having a fund and all the people I talked to who were seemed to like want to have a fund instead. And I was like, okay, then that seems I should just having the fund and see what happens. And I thought, okay, so that might be what I want because what I wanted is not what I want. And my downside of this doesn't work out is like, I don't think I'm going to destroy anybody. I'm not Bernie Madoff or anything like that. Worst case is like, the fund doesn't do great and I have to go get a job. And I was like, well, I don't want this job. So I need to go get another job anyway. So the downside is like, there's no real downside. It's just like, this could be embarrassing, but that's not really a downside. When I think about it, like in my mind, don't think about it. It's huge. But that was the thought process of like, what I want, thought I wanted was wrong. I probably want this other thing. And if I pursue that other thing, there's no real downside. So yeah, let's do it. A couple of months figuring out what I needed to do, talking to people, because again, it's a project where you reach out and figure it out. And then I launched the, the fund Korean Capital in June 2013. Nice. That's always an incredible experience when you get the thing you want and it's have you have enough self-awareness to realize it's not actually the thing you want. That's an interesting experience there. And what advice would you have for someone looking to start their own fund? Big mistake I made is you want a good name that is easy to spell. So I did my middle name, which is impossible to spell, and it doesn't stick in anybody's head. And that was a mistake. These, these weird things about use your the street you grew up on or whatever, like do that if it's easy for people to remember. You want just strong oak capital, something like that. You do want a, a silly <laughs> name like that. That's like the practical thing. Think about the downside. Think about what you want in your life. And if the downside is acceptable, pursue it. And what I've seen I think with myself and with everybody else, when people pursue a big new project, whether it works out or not, like they grow as a person and they meet new people and new opportunities that simply could not have existed before become possible. I'm a big fan of pursuing big projects, whatever they are, whatever somebody is interested in, because I think you get these ancillary benefits that are unexpected and sometimes worth even more than what you were going for. Like I know people who have done freelancing and it turned into like a job that they never were qualified for and like all sorts of stuff like that. Think about what the downside is. If you can handle it, then you should err on the side of pursuing it. Oh, good advice. Yeah. Thanks for that. Before we wrap up, is there anything you'd like to add that you might not have gotten a chance to touch on? I'm thinking about the yield curve and people, if they have money in banks, they should put it in T-bills. Like <laughs> I know this is a simple thing, but like your after-tax returns will be better. It's better than FDIC insured. It's unlimited amounts of money. Like if you have savings, pull it out of the banks, put it into T-bills. It's free to do it at any brokerage account, or you get just like a money market fund that only does treasuries. You'll be better off and will destroy the banking system faster so that I can buy more stocks. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It works on so many levels. I see these ads for banks. and It's like, you can get a CD here for... 4.75%. 4.75%. I'm like, you can beat that with a treasury bill. Like why? And then you've got after-tax benefits too. I'm just flabbergasted that anybody who thinks about this is like, this is a better deal. Take the better deal. Yeah, that's a, a small thing, but I think everybody should be buying treasury money market funds right now or straight treasury bills. 
Yeah, the yields are definitely nice. And you're right, there's some tax advantages there to buying. And there's profound safety in investing in the world's biggest economy. <laughs> yeah, interactive brokers, at least, they're marginable at like 1% or 2%. You should be able to sell them under any circumstances to buy stocks. And if you can't, you can margin them and still be able to buy whatever you want. So it's a extremely fungible in case something goes bump in the night. Then the hard part is actually buying something when things go bump in the night, but at least the money's there. Yeah, cool. And what are the best places for people to learn about you and uh, reach you? The website is the best place, kareencapital.com. And I'll spell that because it's too hard to spell. C-U-R-R-E-E-N capital.com. That's where I've got stuff. You can sign up for letters there, read a little bit about me. And I've got some videos that I made in the past that are accessible there. So you can find my YouTube channel. I haven't updated that in a while because I hadn't had good ideas, but all that is accessible through the, the website. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on today and thank you for your time. My pleasure. This is a lot of fun. Thank you.